We all think that we're good enough as we're better than average. But I think it was Time magazine that did an article some years ago on how almost 87% of Americans believe there's a heaven and about the same percentage believe that they're going there. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Kingsmead Service today, the 9th of January, 2022. It kind of feels a bit strange to be saying 2022, doesn't it? Um, it always takes me a couple of weeks to get used to that change, especially after the last couple of years just seem to have melted into each other. Um, allow me to take the opportunity to wish you all a happy and prosperous 2022, and hopefully we will soon be back to meeting in person really soon. Today's sermon uh, will be from Scotty Brown, which I'm looking forward to, and I'm sure you will all enjoy. Uh, let's get started today with our first hymn, which is a new one to me. Um, it's called My Song is Love Unknown. Shall we bow our heads and join together in prayer? Dear Father God, we want to start today by thanking you for the opportunity and the ability to meet in spirit, even whilst we cannot see each other in person. Please bless our speaker today and open our hearts and minds to your word. Lord, after the hard year we've had in 2021, 
please help us not to forget your plan for our lives. Help us to not look around, but look up and remember that our hope is not in what's around us physically in the world, but that our hope lies in you. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you. There are so many distracting voices that clamor for our attention. And so we ask that you help us to shut out those so that we can focus on your voice. Help us to make room for you and to make time with you a top priority in our life. Lord, we ask that you guide our decisions and turn our hearts to deeply desire you above all else. We ask that you open doors needing to be opened and close the ones needing to be shut tight. We ask that you help us to release the grip on the things which you've said no or not yet or wait to. Lord, we ask for your wisdom, for your strength and your power to be constantly present within us. We pray you would make us strong and courageous for the road ahead. Give us the ability beyond what we feel able to let your gifts flow freely through us so that you would be able to be honoured by our lives and our actions and that others would be drawn to you. Father, we pray for your protection over our friends and our families. We ask for your hand to cover us and keep us distance from the evil intentions of the enemy that you would be a barrier to shield us and surround us, that we'd be safe in your hands. We pray that you'd give us discernment and insight beyond our years uh, to understand your will, to hear your voice and know your ways. Lord, we also pray for those who are in pain, suffering, distress, or just feeling lost and need to be comforted. Help us to see that you are the way to our salvation and it is through you that we will learn what the meaning of love truly is. Lord, we ask this all in your holy name. Amen. Our next hymn is uh, an old favourite and I think it's something that we all need to remember and that's uh, All to Jesus I Surrender. to him. 
So, as all of us do at the end of an old year and at the beginning of a new one, um, I had some time, not a lot, but uh, some time to think about what is important in my life and how I could improve or change it. And I realize a lot of the time change is inevitable and out of our control, but there are a few things that we have some small measure of control over. One of those things is who we make and keep as our friends. Friends are really important. Um, in Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 and 10 it says, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. And that's so true. I mean, it really struck home to me just how important friends are when over the Christmas break there were various friends and family and members of the congregation who were suffering from COVID-19. I mean how isolated and alone people could feel if they didn't have anyone to care about them and it bothered me. I, I, I wanted to see how important friendship is and what the Bible can say about it. So off I went to have a look. And you know, the Bible perhaps has more to say than we would have thought about friendship. The theme of friendship actually weaves through the whole storyline of Scripture, climaxing at the cross where Jesus Christ performed the ultimate act of friendship and sacrificed himself so that we had an eternal future stretching out that was full of true friendships. And the Bible also gives us some practical wisdom uh, which we can use to cultivate friendships. And so today as my little soapbox thing, I thought I'd just highlight a few things I learned when I journeyed through the Bible and friendship. And the first thing I, I realized is that friendship can strengthen and thicken the church community. The studies today show that our culture has an increasing amount of isolation or feeling of isolation. We're in the midst of a loneliness epidemic almost. I mean, with the pandemic going on, everyone feels isolated as you shut away behind doors. But every church is equipped with all the resources needed to be a community of strong relationships. I mean, this is our heritage after all. Uh, the Apostle John referred to fellow believers in churches as his friends, if you look in uh, 3 John 15. The second thing I learned is that friendship shows the world we belong to Jesus uh, in this lonely world of broken relationships. Churches are filled with friendships. Not necessarily perfect friendships to be sure. I mean Springbok and All Black Support will never see eye to eye. But these relationships are filled with forgiveness and true repentance. And so outsiders will see that this has to come from above. 
they will see that when we talk about Jesus, he is a friend of sinners. And it's real. In John 13, Jesus said about our actions, he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that love is, is like no other. I mean, as I said, he sacrificed himself as the ultimate act of friendship and love. Another thing I learned is that if we're talking about true friendship, not, not just fly-by-night stuff, it's more, it's, it's, not a, it's not a thing to take lightly. I mean, we often treat relationships like we're all consumers. We make friends for the benefits that we can receive. Uh, and in, in like a business contract, if a relationship doesn't give us what we want, then we're out, we leave. And that's not what a true friendship really should be. The Bible says to us that a real friendship is more like a covenant than a contract. Uh, if we have a look at Proverbs, it teaches us that uh, friends should stick closer than brothers. In Proverbs 18, it says, do not forsake your friend. And warns us about the fickleness of fair weather friends. Um, in fact, Proverbs, if, I, if I'm looking at it, is really, ha is almost like a practical guide to forging true friendships, you know, uh, friendships for dummies, if you will. Uh, it gives us wisdom for navigating the complexities of all our relationships and friendship in particular. Uh, for example, in Proverbs 13 and Proverbs 22, it teaches us about what we should look for in finding true friends. It shows us in Proverbs why loyalty is so important for cultivating friendship. It also shows us that one of the most damaging things for friendships and any other kind of relationships really is keeping secrets and spreading secrets. And so we should guard against that. I think the one other thing which I found and which I think probably is the most important about friendship is that friendship with God and friendship with one another is truly our greatest joy. John wrote to believers, believers for a purpose. He said, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's my hope that in this new year, we find or renew lifelong friendships so that our joy can be complete. And uh, with that in mind, before we hand over to Scott, um, I'd like our next hymn to be about our most amazing friend who laid down his life for us. So let's listen to what a friend we have in Jesus.
thank you everyone and uh now scotty it's over to you good morning kingsmead church i have been asked to share today and uh what's been on my heart a lot uh, recently is this uh question about how good is good enough and the question we really want to look at today is what's wrong with the most popular theory about heaven and well what is the most popular theory about heaven uh, i think it's the the idea that um good people go to heaven and uh, uh many people don't have anything really major against christianity their problem with christianity is that they feel that surely there's more than one way to get to heaven when we die and just to be clear right at the beginning uh, jesus tells us that i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me that's from john 14 verse 6. but the world would look at that and say surely god is just so big he didn't limit access to himself through only one door and basically as you've said the idea that supports the notion that there are many paths to heaven is this just the good people go to heaven so not all Christians, but good Christians go to heaven. Not all Jews, but good Jews go to heaven. Not all Catholics, but good Catholics, good Buddhists, even good atheists. Just all good people go to heaven. It's not any one group that's going to get there, except for the good people. It's just that the good people from all those groups are going to get there. Now, even some Christians believe that, maybe subconsciously, as well as questions like, how can a loving God send anyone to an eternity in hell? I would love to answer that question, but uh, there's not going to be time for that today. But if you were to ask many Christians why God would let them into heaven, many would answer that they believe in God and in Jesus. And then they would add to it that they're doing their best and they're a good dad or mum. They go to church, they pray, they do their best not to hurt or offend anybody. They're polite and courteous. And, and, and we would all add that we're not perfect. Like we need to say that. The other reason most people think that the good folks are going to make it is because they kind of believe that if there's a heaven, I'm probably going there because whatever the qualifications are, I'm sure that I'm at least slightly above average. There are people better than me but there are many more way worse than me. So while I'm not perfect, I'm good and I'll make it there. We all think that we're good enough as we're better than average. But I think it was Time magazine that did an article some years ago on how almost 87% of Americans believe there's a heaven and about the same percentage believe that they're going there. So if you're working on averages, there's certainly a lot of those that are below average. Anyway, in some ways there's some merit to this argument, humanly speaking. Uh, but it's just a worldly argument. It's definitely what the Bible preaches. So let me just explain why people do believe, the world does believe that good people go to heaven. And I think the first point is that it's a fair system. In our homes, good things happen to good people. And when you're bad, bad things happen. In society, at least it used to be like this, good things happen to the good folk and bad things happen to the bad people. So if you steal or kill, you go to jail. If you're corrupt, you should go to jail. But if you're a good person, you should be voted mayor or something better. That's how it used to be anyway. Another advantage of thinking this way is that you'll make the cut. You're a good person. So one of the advantages of thinking that good people go to heaven is that you'll go to heaven because you're a good person. A third advantage perhaps is that it motivates people to be good. If you live your life thinking that the good people will make it and the bad people won't, well, while you're not quite sure what good is, that's quite motivating especially as you get closer to the end of your life, as time is running out for people and they try to get a balance of good in these scales. Another reason perhaps is that it's very consistent with the idea of a good God. 
If there is a good God who lives in a good heaven, it just should be filled with good people. That makes sense. And we could come up with many more reasons why good people go to heaven. It just seems logical and practical. Um, <clears throat> it's easy to buy into. It makes common sense. However, we are going to look at some of the problems with this theory, the good people go to heaven view, as there are major problems with believing that this is this is the case. Now, chances are there are many people who believe that, including some Christians. We may even believe it subconsciously without articulating it, but living as though it's how much we pray or go to church or have our quiet times or help other people, that really counts. Now, obviously those things do count. I don't want to discount them. But there are many byproducts of a relationship with Jesus. When we are in relationship with Jesus, those things will happen as byproducts. They'll happen automatically. So let's look at some of the problems with that way of thinking. The way of thinking that says good people go to heaven. And the first is that there's no clear standard of good and bad by which we can check our progress. Other, of course, than the word of God. But then you would need to be a Christian to go to heaven. So if good people go to heaven, we need to know what it means to be good. And we need to know how good is good enough. And we need to know if it's a scale thing or how it works, because we really don't know. Surely God, whatever, from the world's point of view, or whoever he is, owes it to us to give us some idea of what good is and how good is good enough, if my eternity hinges on that. Surely this person who is a good God in a good heaven and is going to, make, to gather all the good people ought to be good enough to make it clear to me what's good enough and how good is good enough, especially if he loves me. Surely the Bible is from God or at least partly from God. And if this is the target and I shoot from this, that ought to be good enough. However, this will burst that bubble. If the Bible is your goal, you will never be that good. We might feel we're doing a good job trying to keep all the Ten Commandments. And even though we're not perfect, surely God looks at the intentions of the heart, or perhaps he has a minimum pass mark like we've kept 51% of the law or something like that. But let's look at what the Bible does say. If I look at Romans 3 and just stay in Romans 3, it gives us a lot of answers. Uh, firstly, in verse 23 of Romans 3, um, I read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means everybody tried, nobody made it. If I look at verse 10, Romans 3 again, there is none righteous, no, not even one. The Bible says that there are no good people. It tells me what to do to try to be good. But at the end of the day, the Bible itself says that there aren't any righteous or good people, which reminds me of Jeremiah 17 verse 9, which tells us, tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? But again, going back to Romans 3, in verse 20, uh, we see that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. It's through the law that actually we become conscious of sin. And it is almost exactly that. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So when you and I die, God is not going to say that you did such a good job keeping the law that I'm going to let you in. The Bible says that's never going to happen. Nobody is righteous enough according to the law. The Bible teaches that the reason God gave you the law wasn't to give you something to learn so you could go to heaven. It teaches that the reason God gave the law to Moses was so that we would realize that we are really evil and unable to live to that standard. So if the Bible is your standard and what you're looking for to find the difference between good and bad, no one is this good, apart from one man, Jesus. If the Bible is the standard, 
there are no good people because the standard is way, 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 way too high. Now, important, I think, to mention that a lot of people think that if they can keep the Ten Commandments, then they will go to heaven when they die. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Interestingly, the word heaven does not appear one time in any of the books where the Ten Commandments are referred to. There's no relationship in the Bible between the law and where you spend eternity. That might surprise some of us. There's not, no, there's just no verse that even suggests that if you keep these Ten Commandments, you'll make it. It's not in the Bible. Not even a verse that suggests that if you're faithful to try your best to keep these Ten Commandments, you'll go to heaven when you die. It's not even implied. And Paul explains it this way in Galatians 2 verse 16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will ever be justified. That's really interesting. It, when I look back over history, major wars have been fought over what two different groups thought were right and wrong. And at any one point in the war, you could go to either side and ask them what they were fighting for, and each side would believe that they were standing for what's right. And both believe they've got God on their side if they believe in God. I, I think of um, things like the American Civil War. Some believed in slavery, some didn't. Uh, the Holocaust. Um, and people were believing they were doing God a favor or doing the world a favor by killing the Jews. And yet the Jews believe they are God's people. Uh, everyone's brought up in a culture that decides what's right and wrong. But if there's a God over all the universe, it's only what he thinks that's important. And if we disagree with God on anything, well, guess who's right? <laughs> it's not us. Secondly, another problem with the good people go to heaven philosophy is that we don't know how the whole thing grades out. In other words, <coughs> we don't know what percentage of our actions have to be good enough to make the cut. Is 50% or 70%? If we asked everyone what they thought, everyone would have an opinion. But that's all it is. It's just an opinion. Do some deeds weigh in more than others to give you a better weighted pass mark? You might say, well, I've never killed anybody. And when does it start? Does it start when you're six or seven? Does adolescence count on the how good is good enough scale to calculate your pass mark? Some people are in big trouble because they've done so many bad things that they don't have enough time left to do enough good things to get an average passing grade. If you believe good people go to heaven, you've no earthly idea where you stand with God, but you've made up a system in your mind as to what's important to God and what's not. It's just your opinion. If that's the case, you're in a heap of trouble hinging your entire eternity, relying on your, relying on your earthly opinions to get you into a heavenly realm. None of us are that smart. The actual reality is, even if you get 100% for being good, actually you're still not good enough to make the grade for heaven, as Paul told us in Galatians 2.16. Now, the third and probably the biggest problem with the good people go to heaven idea is that it makes a liar out of Jesus Christ. The religious leaders of Jesus' day taught that to go to heaven, you have to be good. The Pharisees and the Sadducees' entire lives were consumed with being good. So they were very holy and very religious. And Jesus came along and he said, You see those people over there? Those are the holy, good people. And unless your goodness exceeds theirs, you're not going to heaven. And that's in Matthew 5 verse 20, and I'll read it. For I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the people of Jesus' day would have thought that the Pharisees were, if I can use the word, the goodest people there are. 
Of course, that's not good English, but um, they were the most righteous people around. And Jesus said that while that may be true, unless our goodness or righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Jesus will walk up to unholy, unrighteous people and tell them that they were forgiven. He taught that the best of the best were not making it, and the worst of the worst were forgiven. Jesus didn't believe that good people go to heaven. He taught that forgiven people go to heaven. People who, by faith, believe in his unmerited favor toward us, his grace. And there's a huge, huge difference. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. And forgiveness comes only by putting our faith in Jesus, who alone has paid the penalty for our sins and set us free from the penalty or the consequences of our sins. So that brings me to the second part here, which uh, I want to address, and that's the question of how then should we live? Because if even 100% is not good enough, what is it to be good in God's eyes? Well, <clears throat> a, a real key verse to understand this is Habakkuk 2 verse 4. Uh, we need to put that in context, but um, in the absence of context, it's, it's uh, quoted several times in the New Testament as well, but it reads this, Behold, and he's talking about the proud Babylonians, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And as I said, it's quoted in Romans 1, Galatians 3, and Hebrews 10. And we also read in Genesis where Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. Not how good a dad he was or how much he prayed or none of the things that we think of as goodness. But he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness in Genesis 15 verse 6. So, for those who trust in this world, in their own strength and their ability to make a plan, just things of or in the world in any way, uh, there's a warning. Here's the problem with the Babylonians. In Habakkuk 1.11, uh, we read that they sweep past like the wind and are gone, but they are deeply guilty, for their own strength is their God. So the Babylonians would, in turn, face the judgment of God for their cruelty and lack of respect for God. But their own strength was their God. And for us, anything or anyone that we put our trust and confidence in before God is as a God to us. The God of the Babylonians was their strength. Elsewhere, talk, Paul talks about people whose appetites were their gods. They lived to satisfy their bellies. In Philippians 3.19, we read, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. I think that's another key. Minds set on earthly things, um, and their God is their belly. Um, <clears throat> we read in Isaiah 31, verse 1, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. <clears throat> wow. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Woe to us when we look to man for help, when we look to the things of this world for help. What are some of the things we trust in or enjoy more than God today? It might be our comforts or convenience. It might be our businesses, our farms, our bank balances, food, friends, vehicles, secure homes, internet, and so on and on. Our behavior shows what we really trust in. Do we find it difficult to fast or to tithe or anything else? How we behave, what we do, shows us what we trust in. And that brings me to understanding the work of, the God, of God, what we do. And I love this passage in, in John 6. In verse 28, his disciples said to him, 
What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, not what you think. He says this, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Wow. You expect the work of God would be to um, make it your business to be evangelizing and to live in good lives, be praying to... Those things will happen, yes. But we've got to believe. And if we believe, that will radically affect the way that we behave. And John 16, verse 8, I was talking to my wife about um, what she thinks is the greatest sin. And she answered immediately, it's not murder or cheating or dishonoring parents or lying or stealing, but the greatest sin, to her mind, and you probably will, some many of you will think of it straight away, the greatest sin is unbelief. And we read in John 16, verse 8, and onwards, when he, which is the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And he carries on concerning righteousness and concerning judgment. But concerning sin, because they do not believe. So in practice, this is a, a statement that I've, I've quoted for many, many years. But in practice, we only believe as much as we do. What we genuinely believe in, we will put into practice. So if we believe, we will live very differently. And, and I'm thinking of things like if you believe in doctors, you'll go to a doctor when you're sick. If you don't, you won't. If you believe in the police, you'll go to the police when you have a break-in or when you get you know, unfairly treated or when there's... If you believe in the banks, you'll invest money in the bank. But if you don't trust the bank, you won't. And if we believe in Jesus, we will live very differently if our trust is first and foremost in Him as opposed to being in our own plan, our ability to make a plan. Now, I'm not talking about believing as the demons do, because in James 2.19 we, we are told, um, James says, You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. So if we do believe, we will really live life putting our trust and confidence in God, relying on God, depending on God, clinging to God, and we won't put our confidence in our own strength and plans uh, or bank balances or, or anything like that, but our trust is in God to look out, take care of us, and we will step out boldly to do His work when, when we first do the work of believing. Very interesting, the work of God is to believe, and that's Jesus' own words. The world tells us that seeing is believing, but the Bible tells us people who live by faith that the reality is believing is seeing. You won't see it if you don't believe first. But when you first believe, and the work of God is to believe, when you first believe, you'll begin to see the results of that belief. And I've, I've heard some many preachers say that we can't truly understand the Bible until we obey it. So we need to obey it because we believe it and then see the fruit of it. And I love what Matthew 6, uh, we all know this well, in verse 33 says, Jesus talking, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So just to wrap up, what makes Christianity different to the world's view? The world says that good people go to heaven, which is interesting the world would even consider a heaven. Um, for, for worldly people that do consider heaven, the world says good people go there. But... Jesus says there's only one way, and that's through him. Now, the thing that makes Christianity different to anything else is that Christianity is not about what we do 
or our doing. It's about what Jesus has done. Christianity teaches that forgiven people, and he's forgiven us, so those who've repented will go to heaven. And the way we get forgiven is to throw ourselves at the mercy of the only one who could pay the price for our sins, and that's Jesus. The only way that we can know forgiveness and be received into heaven. He's taken the penalty. He's paid the price for our sins. And he's made a way for us where there was no way. We can summarize this in three statements, I suppose. One, the first one is that everyone is welcome. And Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The second statement is that everybody gets in the same way. Jesus says that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, as we already quoted from John 14, verse 6. And he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. He is the only way. And the third thing is that everybody can meet the requirement. There's a level playing field. And we read from John 3, 16, that we just need to believe in him. The work of God is to believe. And John 3.16, I think we all know it well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So if I can leave us with those three thoughts, those three statements, everybody is welcome, everybody gets in the same way, only one way, and everybody can meet the requirement. We just need to believe and to live by faith in the promises of the Bible. It's not about our good works, but good works will follow when we, when we believe. And when we love God and obey Him, we will begin to see what we're believing in. If I can leave you with that, just want to say God bless, and with lots of love, I pray this message will be a real blessing in each of our lives. Thank you. Thank you for that uh, inspiring message, Scott, and uh, always a pleasure to have you as part of the, <laughs> the sermon team. Um, our final hymn today, I think, uh, is Jesus is the way to God. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will hear from you again next week. Thank you.